Welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the big Finnish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is JG McQuarrie, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Kev Koser. Say hi, Kev. Hi. How are you doing this week? I am still reeling from the fact that I listened to a Doctor Who adjacent or otherwise story where there was a pot reference. Completely <laughs> took me off well. guard. <laughs> Well, that would catch anybody off guard. Fair enough. Well, this this week we are Doctor Who adjacent, so we are delving into the world of Iris Wildthyme. And that means we have our Iris Wildthyme expert with us, which means we have Abby Denton returning to the podcast. Say hello, Abby. Homo sapiens. What wonderful things you create well, as Iris Wildthyme. Let's, let's wait and see if that's borne out by the episode, shall we? How are you doing hey. this week? I, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I, I should warn you, I am in no way an expert. I'm simply a huge fan of Iris Wildtime. Oh, that's all that we require. I, I haven't even read the, the books that she was from. No, but you have such fabulous opinions. That's all that we need. Oh, th- I, I, I make a point of having bad opinions as often as possible, just uh, just to, to even out the pack, you know? So I, I, I'd be happy to contribute. Well, I, I think that makes you a perfect fit for this podcast. And speaking of which, I think we can probably crack on. So we're going to be covering two stories in Iris Wildthyme's second season. So it means we're going to be covering The Sound of Fear and The Land of Wonder. So let's kick off with The Sound of Fear. Kev, would you care to give us our usual summary, please? Sure. Iris and Panda land at radio yesterday, a space station broadcasting what turns out to be a copyright law-avoiding uh mishmashes of songs from the past and running that station is iris's former husband sam gold who she ran away from on their wedding night because she's iris wild time <laughs> also on the station is lisa a woman being controlled by the the mohanli aliens who are trying to invade the earth of the 1960s and take over the music industry therefore Iris, Panda, Sam, and the uh, hippie stoned computer Janice wind up devising a scheme to stop the the aliens and save the Earth. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Okay, that gets us off to a start. So, Abby, since you are our guest this week, why don't you kick us off? What did you think of this one? Uh, This was the first uh, Iris Wildtime story I'd ever properly listened to. I I guess the Wormery had been the first, uh, and then I I started looking into more stuff, and then this was the first... uh, of her of her spin-off line that I'd listened to uh it 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 was a it was a it was a good start I I'll admit that the uh the computer's voice uh turns me off every time but it's not it's not as bad as a voice will be will be meeting later in this episode um <laughs> and I I I can never decide if I if I enjoy it as as this this very it's I think what the problem is that uh, I I like serious sci-fi to be campy but uh, funny sci-fi, I, I don't really see the point. You might as well just, if, if you're going to be funny anyway, then why why do this kind of very over-the-top cartoon voice? Mm-hmm. And and I, I don't like Janice, and, and that's the worst thing that I can confess. I, I don't think that's an unfair opinion of uh, Janice, but before I, before I reveal my own hands, uh, Kev, how did you find this one? I think I'm going to be in the middle here. I, I really enjoy Iris and Panda. Those are two really great characters. And I think just spending time with them is great, even if what's around them is... Uh, I think what you're talking about with Janice, where camp sci-fi doesn't... Or funny sci-fi doesn't also have to be camp on top of that. 
I think it's going to be a recurring criticism among a lot of areas of this story as we dig into it. But that's just sort of, yeah, my overall impression of the story as well. And while this is a little very silly in parts, I just think the characters of Iris and Fan are so well realized that it's, it strung me along well. Like, I didn't wind up hating it. I was just, well, that killed a very long 80 minutes. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, well, I'm I'm at the other end of the spectrum because I did hate it. Um, I Ooh. yeah, I'm am really sorry. I'm, I'm going to be the I'm going to be the negative Nancy here. I this is the worst big finish story I think I've ever listened to. Um, I I really hated it. Um, I I agree with what Kev says. I I do think um, Iris and Panda are such great characters, and I enjoy listening to them. But I felt sorry for them having to put up with this and I love Katie Manning and I love David Benson I think they're fabulous but I just I felt such pity for them having to slog through this deeply unfunny kind of trite series of cliches I I had such a negative reaction to this I, I can't even really explain it beyond I just I don't know it's just like everything about this rubbed me up the wrong way except for those two performances which are always sort of worth listening to in their own right so like Janice just made me I, I literally I, I was listening to this in the car and I literally parked turned off the ignition killed the killed the audio and swore extremely loudly and frightened some small children who were next to the car it was <laughs> it had that kind of reaction to it and I, I I'm kind of like, it wasn't that bad you know it's not like a war crime i don't know why i had such a strong reaction to it but i oh i really really dislike this you you know i i i assume you're going to have had a, a similar response to to the second story we're talking about today um uh should should we mention now um that uh the the, the second iris wild time box set was sort of meant to be a, a decade by decade uh walk through the history of doctor who uh, which I always thought was an interesting shtick to take. Uh, I don't even know if if we were going to talk about that. Uh, this was meant to be like a like an early '60s, like base under siege story. Except instead of a of a military base, it's a it's a wacky radio station in space. Ha ha. And so, like the only way that I've been able to to not get mad about the terrible voices on Janice and the Mock Turtle, about whom we will have words. Um, has just been as as an attempt to like square with its its light entertainment history of the the show. I, I don't know. I don't get it. Oh, I'm just I'm just waiting for you to finish. Yeah, I never I didn't pick up on that yet. Though I did sort of I noted that it was oh the sixties and the seventies, but I didn't realize that the next two would then be eighties and nineties. But um, yeah, I think it's a really I think that is a good conceit, and I like the idea of sort of satirizing a base under siege story. I just think it's maybe too many hats on a hat, as we were sort of talking about Janice specifically, but to expand the whole story, it's just a lot of elements going on, and they all have maybe about 40% of the uh, concentration to make them fully like original and fun ideas. And so it's, yeah, it's these two great characters, but um, yeah, I... It really is just... I just wish there was more specificity in a lot of the comedy here beyond what Iris and Panda bring. Yeah, yeah. It definitely feels like there were maybe like two separate outlines that someone was like, yeah, combine the two. And then make it a 60s satire. And the guy's like, well, I, I don't really... 
like the 60s. Uh, make it a base under siege. Um, yeah, I, I could definitely see that. I What I can't tell if I hate or if it's the funniest thing like I've ever heard is the way that like the guy dramatically dies while saying like, you have too much love to give the world, Iris. Like the, <laughs> the universe is the only thing big enough to return your love, Iris. And Iris just doesn't seem to care at all. I can't decide if, if that makes me hate Iris or if it's like incredibly funny. I think that might be the bit that works the best for me is the fact that Iris is, it's almost like, Proto River Song, but almost making fun of River Song a decade before they'd come up with it. Well, I guess more like <laughs> seven years. But um, I don't know. I didn't do the math. I just did the math very quickly. Well, the, this was 2009, so actually so, I think so it would have been sort of okay. just okay. around when she started to. My math was very bad, but um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. Certainly I she seven was years before teens. she she peaked. Yeah, for sure. But um, yes, yeah, so sort of Paul Mar not Paul Marx, whoever wrote this story. Uh, 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 this was written by Mark Mikulowski. There it is. The, nec- the next page. episode was Paul Mars, though. Rice. But yeah, it is. And when the River Song thing comes up in Doctor Who, I mean, the character is very light and fun, but the idea of this, like, marriage and past history given so much weight and importance and mystery. And here, Iris is just, oh, I ran off because, oh, I can't remember. <laughs> I just can't be tamed. And then he dies so dramatically for her. And like you said, she has this very, like, uh, brushing it off. She's sad in the moment. And it's a realistic reaction. But at the same time, she just picks herself up again. Well, got to keep going. And I just, I think that's almost, like, what's the most unique idea of the story is treating things that would be so serious in Doctor Who and then just, like, sort of taking, having sort of a laugh at it. And... I don't know. I think you need to tweak the character of Sam Gold a bit to make it really work because here he's just kind of there. There's not much to him other than like the idea of Iris running off on the wedding and leaving the man destroyed could be funnier if there's just more specificity in who that man was. Well, of course, my theory is that it's uh, a, a secret plan by Irving Braxiatel himself. Of course. That's why they sound so similar. It's worth mentioning, uh, Sam Gold is played by Miles Richardson, same voice actor. And, yeah, I think he has a good job with what he's given. It's just not given a lot. Hmm. Actually, talking about uh, very dramatic Doctor Who speeches, I like the idea of Iris Wildtime, Three Sheets to the Wind, trying to give, like, an oncoming storm speech. Mm, yeah. I, I, I would like to see that. I would, I would love to see that, too. I think that is a sort of territory where the character works the best, where you're putting her in these Doctor Who, very doctory situations, and it's Iris Wildtime instead. So she can't quite manage the same level of gravitas. Hmm. You know, I, actually, it's weird, because I, I listened to this story first of all of them, and I didn't hear the first series until shortly before we covered them, actually. Um, and and those stories feel like they had a much better idea of, of like, what makes Iris and even Panda, who wasn't like mm-hmm. officially a companion yet, like fun together. Whereas these two stories sort of feel a lot more like they're still getting the hang of it. And I don't know if the idea was just like, oh, it's the 60s, they're still getting a hand- handle of the characters. 
in some sort of weird ultra meta way or I don't know if, if it was just sort of a, a new huh. structure to the writing. I, I don't know. I think that's one of yeah. the one of the reasons that I had such a hard time with this particular episode is because when we covered the first two Iris stories, I mean they were they were inconsistent, but I think you could see the real core of what it was that was going to make these stories work. And again, of course, it, it centers around the main companions, one of whom is conspicuous by his absence here, and they kind of explain that, and that's fine. And you know, it's it's a nice little meta joke that somebody leaves for romance, and it's basically just all off screen. That's fine. Um, with, with someone that he'd, he'd never been seen to talk to yeah, in exactly. one of their adventures. That's like, that's like the one meta joke that actually works here for me. Um, but, I, but you could see, or hear rather, listening to those first kind of Irish stories, that the, even although they were kind of finding their feet a little bit, um, there was that sense that there was a core of something that was really worth sort of exploring within these um, characters. And so I think that's one of the reasons I found this such a disappointment, because... They don't do anything really with them. And one of the things I think that Katie Manning is so brilliant at being able to do is she's able to keep that kind of flippancy on the surface, the kind of, you know, you know, tipsy ante kind of performance going. But underneath it, she's able to bring kind of currents of sadness or regret or all that kind of stuff. And I wanted to see kind of more of that played up in this story and especially with a, a story of a, a you know a, a jilted husband at the altar and a, a wedding she ran away from there's so much scope there to give the character those kind of depths and dimensions and it's all just kind of skated over in the most facile way we get reference to her memories not being right in the crystals and all the rest of it which is fine that's a good but it's just like a continuity reference to explain why the characters aren't as good as they should be and I think that's one of the reasons I found this so disappointing is that, that this is a great setup for a character like this and they just waste it. I'm trying so hard not to swear here. I really want everybody <laughs> to be impressed by how restrained I am being by not swearing here. But really, it just feels like such a waste to have such a good actor, such a good character, such a good situation, and then just do nothing with it. Yeah, it's it's definitely like... Uh... The most disappointing Iris story we've covered. Like you said, those first two, um, the last season we covered about a year ago, um, like they're very still shaky, but definitely have like a strong sense of who the character is. And of course, things like the Warmery are fantastic. But yeah, this is, it's, yeah, it just really feels like they're still working it out, like they're taking a step backwards. And I get that uh, Mark Michalowski, I don't think, has written any Iris Wild Time stories before. Just doing a brief skim of the credits. It seems like the big finish story is they'll have Paul Margs in for like a se- one episode a season, and he'll bring sort of the his old touch to it. But yeah, it really does feel like, and especially with four years between audio releases, the last series was two thousand five. This is two thousand nine. Yeah, I just don't really know my finger on it, other than I guess they're just really out of practice and didn't know what to do with the character as well. Yeah, I, I, I do want to say in defense of this of this story that as as a, a vehicle just for like one liners about getting drunk in space, uh, mm-hmm. I don't remember any. I should have written them down, but uh, my partner and I did did get a, a, a bunch of good chuckles when we were re-listening to this the other day. Um, so it's you know it, it's it's not all a wash. It's got some good lines. 
she's described as as something that rhymes the the bint in a wig or something it it rhymes and i remember thinking oh that's a wonderful turn of phrase i don't remember it at all i don't remember it at all yeah i i'm trying to find like a like a quotable thing but i i can't find anything there either to, to see if anyone wrote down the line sorry no, it's all good. I was just saying, I remember Panda having some good lines in this episode as well about getting drunk and and just the idea of a panda made of polyester who's just like a very boozy thing. I know we talked about this last time, but it's still, it's just a great concept. It's just He's, very funny. It's a magnificent voice, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, David Benson, I think, like, definitely the MVP of both stories, if it's not Manning. Uh, just turning in great work for sure. She's is one of the reasons it feel, feels like such a waste. Um, I'm sorry. I, I promise I'm trying not to be just quite so relentlessly negative, but it, I, I just find it so hard to be anything else. I wish I could. No, ex- no, no. I, I wish the, I could the, explain the front it half of the set doesn't doesn't live up to her potential at all. You're you're absolutely right. Well, I think the thing is, we, we Kevin and I talked about this a little bit on the last episode we did when we were talking about uh, Christopher Eccleston's return to Doctor Who, which we were obviously unbelievably oh, excited by. Oh, well, it's not happened yet, but he's announced that it's it's, oh. it's happening. Um, but we we were sort of discussing what it was we hoped um, would come out of it, and what we said basically the conclusion was that just don't give in to the worst instincts of of uh, Big Finish, which are self indulgence. And I think that's the problem that this story kind of suffers from. I think it's incredibly self-indulgent. And I find it very easy to imagine um, the actors, the writer, the director, all sitting around having a really good sort of laugh and, and really kind of enjoying it. You know, they, they, they all seem, everybody seems genuinely enthusiastic. Even, bless her little cotton socks, Jane Goddard as, as Janice, even though she has no reason to be. But I, everybody sounds like they're committing to what it is they're doing. Um, but that, for me at least, that energy, it never gets beyond the speaker grill, if you know what I mean. You know, it's clear they're enjoying it, but I, I never feel like I can get on board. It just, it feels like such self-indulgent twaddle. And, and um, you know, just like, just really kind of hackneyed jokes and all the rest of it. And I, often when you get like a script which is like that, you can kind of get it over the finish line if you have these really kind of enthusiastic performances but in this story just can't do it and and i think i think that's it i think it's just playing to like big finishes worst kind of self-indulgent instincts and the cast uh, which i uh, uh, which i do not lay any blame at their feet at all but the cast just can't get it across yeah it's I just saw in sort of the continuity section on the wiki page that the, it referenced the Intergalactic Song Contest. I should have... Oh, maybe I'm glad I didn't remember. Uh, that's a continuity <laughs> point taken from Banga Banga Boom. <laughs> and I think that is maybe the sort of perfect match companion piece in a lot of ways to this story, for better, for worse. It is, yeah, like a lot like that story. It's just very... It has a very clear idea. Well, not even a clear idea. It has an idea, a vague idea of what it wants to sort of poke fun at, and it just sort of goes about it in a very sort of self, uh, in its own sort of way that is, you know, just not very appealing. I said, like, very much sort of in its own head. I'll just say self-indulgent. I feel like, I almost felt like that was a little too mean, but 
it is I don't. what it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah Me is the very least of my concerns here. Um, okay, let's let, let let me let me try and steer the conversation in something uh, which at least suggests positivity. So, Abby, how did you find the rest of the cast here? Like Helen Goblin, San, uh, Scott Hancock, and and Miles Richardson. We haven't particularly talked about them. So, did did you think the rest of the cast away from the regulars and and very much putting Janice to one side. How do you think they came out of this? I I, I think they were they were. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say any of them um, were were doing a career best performance, but I also wouldn't say, you know, they disappointed me. They they did what they were meant to, which is, you know, good. <laughs> That's how a- acting works. They're fine. That's what I should have said. They're fine. I, I like the character of Lisa just because I, I went to high school with someone named Lisa, and it's an unusual name, so every time she was mentioned, I thought, I knew a Lisa. She's fine. Yeah, and I think the concept behind Lisa is another one of those ideas where it's like 40% thought through, where it's, I mean, there's like ripe for parody there. This child prodigy, or at least whose parents say they're a prodigy, goes through music school but can't actually sing a lick. But, and then feels the world is owed to them. But yeah, it's that's kind of all there is to what I just described. And so there's not another layer to the joke there. It's just, and then she's just very cruelly called off at the end. I mean, this is a very brutal ending for everyone involved except for Iris and Panda. Yeah, this, I think the surprise with a lot of the way that these characters are disposed of is that it isn't kind of played a little bit more for laughs. It's it's a real kind of dogleg, like, like, I suppose Sam is to a certain extent because he gets the big kind of speeches and the big, you know, that business going on. Um, so I suppose he gets a little bit of a bit, but Lisa is disposed of very abruptly. Um, and the whole thing, like, well, we've traveled back to the 60s. Oh, no, you're dead. It's, it's, it's kind of very off the cuff. It was like they were looking at a reel of tape going round and going, oh, well, we've only got three minutes left. Quick, just, just do it. Right, they're dead. That's fine. That's the end of the story. Um, Obviously, that's not the case, but it just it has that sense of abruptness. I think I think Helen Goldman does quite well with the performance, and I, I I agree there is good grounds for satire in there. There's plenty in there that can be dug into about kind of the vacuity of celebrity and you know people with absolutely no talent achieving this great fame and feeling that the world is owed to them. And maybe, given that it's now eleven years ago since this was recorded, maybe it feels a little bit more prescient now than maybe it did even back then. We've had an a, a, almost infinite number of kind of reality shows and talent shows and all the rest of it to kind of churn out these kind of nobodies that you remember for five minutes and then move on with your life. So, again, a desperate attempt to be positive and a desperate attempt to try and be uh, constructive with this story. Maybe, maybe that's the one thing it's got going for it. Maybe, maybe that aspect of it does seem more, uh, yeah, more prescient now. And if 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 uh, Lisa's death is kind of a, a little bit abrupt, well, if you wanted to have a generous interpretation of that, you could say, well, that's that's what happens to these kind of uh, you know one and done kind of stars. You know, they one hit wonders or they win a talent show and then. You know, a second later they're gone, and nobody remembers who they are anymore. Yeah, yeah. I just find it interesting that they had to work so hard to abruptly wrap it all up when the story is like eighty minutes long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. And it's not a quick pace. No, it's yeah. It is like a very badly paced story, and that is unfortunate. 
And uh, I'm honestly, that's a big blessing I have with the next story. Is I think for whatever faults it has, I think they are a lot more smoother faults just because mm. it moves at such a quicker pace, and it just keeps throwing new weird ideas at you. And so I think that's a good transition as we might ever get, if unless you had else has any thoughts. I. I wanted to point to, to two gags that I, I think are, are underappreciated. Um, well, what, one, I think the whole story can be redeemed uh, conceptually. If you look at it as a 60s pastiche uh, and just imagine it's written by Mark Michalowski and, and uh, you imagine the writer wrote it, it was someone who hated 60s stories and it was, it was just written to be as bad as possible on purpose. I enjoy that a lot. Oh, wow, this guy's written uh, a lot of Bernice Summerfield stories. Huh. And he's written other Iris Wilde. Hmm. Well, I, I wish him well. I'm sure he's done great stuff. Yeah, I, I'm sure he's not an appalling human being, but um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, I'll, just the stop, I'll, I'll leave that sentence there. Yes, yes. But the, the joke that I loved was the way that this and, and any other story said in like a radio station will have to use like very cheap copyright friendly like public domain songs and that kind of thing and then it's established that that's because it's a computer that exists just to make like these appalling and and now I've I've stolen a power word that uh, you've been using um just to, to make this fake music kind of uh, and I, I enjoy that that's part of the story instead of just being something that they're like oh they haven't written this song yet that's why it sounds terrible. It's from the future. Hey, which would have been the other sort of direction you could go in. And I, I, I enjoy that as a, as a, 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 a tone making note. Yeah. Um, the end. <laughs> just worth pointing out though, to JD's delight though, um, though Mark Michalowski has never written, has written a lot of other prose Doctor Who stories. This is only full-length Big Finish production. His other... <laughs> Few. His other work for Big you know, Finish that, is... I think that kind of explains it. it, it, <laughs> it yeah. Now that you're saying it, it does feel like a very prose sort of timing. I don't know what yeah. that even means. But, it, you know, it's sort of given to the long internal sort of scenes. I mean, they're still external because they're... Uh, Hitler uh, is a short story, Captain's War in 45. Oh, sorry. Huh. I think we're talking over each other. Can't didn't hear what you were saying. Oh, but, right. Um, I, I was, yeah. All good. I just want to remark that I don't remember much of his short story in 45. I just remember that anthology overall being very solid. So when we get to that, uh, hopefully we'll have a better opinion of the man. Fingers crossed. But yeah, I think then we should move on to Land of Wonder. And the summary for this, uh, Iris finds her bus trapped on Earth in the 1970s, much like the Doctor was in that era. And she has to assist Professor Trevor Ramsbottom and his assistant Audrey as they sort of investigate uh, mysterious artifacts in an underground station and eventually come across this uh, white rabbit and mock turtle from the Alice in Wonderland books on a ship called the Jabberwocky. And it turns out that these creatures are being pursued by an organization called Meow, which is sort of a dark version of UNIT. And then Iris sort of follows the trail to a version of Wonderland inside the Earth's core created by a mad woman from Victorian, 
Victorian England, who has created Wonderland, and then Meow pursues them. Uh, Iris takes a feasibility generator that was powering Wonderland to fix her bus, destroying it, and stopping Meow, and is off her merry way. <laughs> it's a very strange story, and also the probably 357th uh, Doctor Who story featuring Alice in Wonderland references. <laughs> 358th, I think you'll find. Mm. Didn't do an exact count, but yeah. I, I think I now remember the first time I listened to this story years ago um, was with my partner, and I, I will have commented multiple times like, oh, this is when they're going to bring in the land of fiction, like twice. Because <laughs> I was just convinced that, you know, if this stuff's happening, it's the land of fiction. It's not often I'll say this, but if only... Ah, <laughs> I no, like this one. It's no, no. To be fair, effect. to be fair, I found this better than the last one. Although, if it had been worse than the last one, I might have quit the podcast. Um, I, I, I do think this was an improvement. Um, when you um, said earlier, you thought that I would have uh, an equally strong reaction to this one. I, it, it's not as bad. It's, it's definitely better. I am heartily sick of the idea of of Alice in Wonderland being used in in anything, whether it's Doctor Who or. Batgirl or, or Batwoman, I should say. Sorry, or, or anything even else. Alice in Wonderland. I'm sick of Alice in Wonderland being used in Alice in Wonderland adaptation. That'll do nicely, but but it's that. But Mock Turtle aside, because uh, you know, uh, yeah, I would take Janice <laughs> over Mock Turtle. Okay, she at least you wow. know you can smoke with her. Well, yeah, okay, you, you make an excellent point there. That that is that is that. Oh, that mooing. Oh my God, I nearly. God. Oh, I I cannot think of. Anything? Well, I can't think of anything more annoying. But I suppose Janice is in the same uh, same neck of the woods. But oh my god, that just again, I'm really. I don't want us to get an explicit rating on, on on anything. I'm not swearing, but you can probably imagine what I'm thinking, right? So here's my theory. Paul Mars wrote this one. Paul Mars' brother, uh, Ben Mars, uh, uh, Mark Mars, Mark, uh, wrote wrote the fourth story in this box set which was released, I, I believe, monthly in 2008. And uh, my theory is they had a fight. And Paul said, I want everyone to stay for long enough to listen to my story and then unsubscribe out of spite toward his brother, just to hurt his brother, who's written a lot about his struggles with, with, with uh, mental illness and, and helping kids cope with, with their own. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's a very cruel thing for Paul Mars to do to a man who's struggled with so much. It's a good theory. You know, that's <laughs> and honestly, it's as good a theory as as, as we're going to get because, oh, dear. Yes, just, oh, dear. Yeah, like I alluded to before, this one has a shorter running time, closer to something like 65 minutes. And it it just keeps throwing stuff at you. There is not a dull moment, at least, in this story. A lot of confusing and weird and exhausting ones but not a dull one absolutely and there's a lot of there's a couple gags i really liked in this and so yeah i think it's overall again and again iris and panda just remain these very delightful characters buoyed by very incredible performances so yeah i'm not completely down on this one i think especially because it's paul margs and he knows how to write them i think this is uh if this was the worst story in the season that i would be a lot i think we'd be fine uh if it's it's the best of the two we're covering i think we're in more trouble <laughs> but i know there's 
from what you've told me, Abby, there's two better ones yet to come. So. I, I enjoy most of this box set, including this one. Okay. At least I just at have least... to apologize to my partner a lot for the, the Mock Turtle's voice. At least this one has a sense of pace to it. I think that's one of the things that's definitely better. Like, like Kev, you say, that they keep throwing out ideas. And not every single idea lands, but they keep coming. So there is a, that kind of relentlessness helps to drive it forward a wee bit. And, and that makes a big difference when it, when it comes to sort of enjoying it. Like, even although it's got shorter runtime, it's not massively shorter, but it feels like it's got more momentum behind it because it just keeps kicking out these ideas. And it, I find it slightly odd that both of these stories seem very interested in drugs. Uh, <laughs> definitely seems to be something that... that unexpectedly linked them together but you know that like you know obviously there's there's a lot of references to kind of psychedelia and all that kind of stuff here which is a bit odd for the 70s story but i suppose if you wanted to be generous and key it in with kind of like the clause of access and it's kind of psychedelic overload and all that kind of stuff if, if we're going for the whole you know each each episode is a you know an era of doctor who then, then there are links there for sure um and and whilst i do find the the alice in wonderland material a bit labored um yeah just the pace of ideas that comes out here helps this to feel like it's going on much faster mm. yeah there's so many little things that, that don't really have time to like i don't think they even explain why panda is narrating everything they're doing in universe where other people can hear him do it he just is doing it because it would be funny uh, yeah but I, that that is like one of my favorite sort of kind of meta gags where it's just like the walls of reality start to fall apart a bit. And then my other favorite kind of meta gag is when they're falling and have a psychedelic experience and you can't hear it because it's audio. Yeah. Which is just such a, <laughs> such a good, like, acknowledgement of the medium. Just really, I mean, it's, I've heard gags like that before, but it just always gets to me. Just that sort of uh, acknowledgement of its own ramshackleness and limits of what it can and can't do. Breaking the fourth speaker. Yes, exactly. So mm. yeah, I, I think gags like that, I had a very much, I had a fun time with. And even if some other parts were just sort of confounding, it it definitely always kept me interested. Yeah, yeah you know, there, there's one thing that I'll give this box set that sort of helped me to realize. Um, I've completely changed clauses there. Uh, one thing that this box set helped me to realize was how... Um, you, you, you have the idea that with uh, with both prose and um, audio, you can sort of create this visual landscape that, you know, you don't need to worry about special effects or bad CGI or whatever. Uh, you, you can just sort of say, like, oh, there's this person's ear has come off and it's this horrible alien monster and it's it's wiggling toward us. And the last story or Wonderland here um, where... where despite that like because of the strengths of audio as a medium like you still will mostly defer to like people sitting in a drawing room discussing whether they think so and so killed so and so like that's still sort of like what audio is is most given to because all you can do is talk um and I, if if i say one thing for this box set it's that uh, they 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 are dedicated to giving you weird visuals um which you don't necessarily see in in uh, the main range all the time. Yeah, I guess that was another thing I liked about 
Sound of Fear was the descriptions of how Lizzo was transforming. And then also in Land of Wonder, you have the descriptions of, of Harriet's like fusing brains into herself. And yet it is this very <coughs> surreal thing that sort of the horror of imagination is the scariest thing of all. Yeah, yeah, the the, the image of a, of a, like a, I'm just going to call her a final boss with like five brains just grafted to her head is, is extremely funny. And I, I, just now I'm, I'm, uh, I'm treating myself to, to, to the imagination of such a, such a head and I'm sort of smirking a little and I, I'm, I'm getting like a, like a mild sensation of joy just from that that image and uh you know that's something that i wouldn't have without this box set so well in a weird so way... there jg <laughs> that's, that's me tell um yeah well in a, in a weird way it kind of refers back to sort of the original kind of illustrations that went with uh alice in wonderland and i i kind of quite like that those those kind of original hand drawings um there's there's a real kind of uh, beauty about them. One of the reasons that I get so frustrated with... Sorry, it's a slight tangent, but oh well, whatever. Um, One of the reasons I get so frustrated about um, the way that Alice in Wonderland crops up as this kind of like default, in inverted commas, kind of surrealism, is that it's... um, I mean, obviously it is. Obviously that's an aspect of what uh, the original piece of work is, but so much of it is... um, it's kind of so genuinely expressive. It is genuinely such a good book, which I feel has been so devalued by this kind of constant repetition in, in popular culture. That's one of the reasons I feel frustrated about. I love genuine sort of surrealism and, and sort of the dreamlike as opposed to the just surrealism as, ooh, that's a bit weird. Um, and a lot of the original illustrations that go along with Alice in Wonderland are these kind of grotesqueries you know and it is this this weird sense that it's not it's not a disney character or it's not you know that kind of thing the, 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 they are these real kind of grotesque imagery so the idea of the queen here she, i don't think she's referred to as the queen of hearts but anyway the queen here um having this kind of head that's massive and, and has five brains inside it that feels like it connects much more strongly to the original kind of Alice in Wonderland rather than either the the kind of Disney or, God help us, Tim Burton, um, you know, than then we usually get when we get this kind of, you know, Alice in Wonderland as, as stand-in for anything a bit strange. So I do kind of appreciate that about this story. It's, it's not a big aspect of it, and I've probably talked longer now than, than the original play even bothers with you know the actual thing that we're talking about but I, I do like that about this so i will give it some points for that for sure it definitely deserves credit there yeah yeah so here's here's my question and th- this this might be a a strange question uh strange uh theory first paul mars i don't think he likes doctor who as much as he likes the idea of weird doctor who continuity jokes um so my my question is I've never never seen Shada I've never listened to any of the forms of Shada out of spite for the sheer number of releases uh the idea of a a prison for creatures from other dimensions trying to infiltrate the rational world in the 70s granted this is mostly like a third doctor parody but you know the fourth doctor was also in the 70s uh it, 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 does this overlap at all with Shada is there any point here that that would function as a parody of Shada 
I know nothing about Shada besides there's a prison in it. Abby, that's as much as I know too. It's another one where it's like there's five releases and I'm like, uh, which one do I, I refuse watch? to watch any of them. Yeah, exactly. Why are you trying to make sure I see this? I'll, I'll be honest. You should have gotten it right the first time. I'll be honest. The first time it occurred to me that this might have a connection to Shada is when you said this might have a connection to Shada. I, I didn't even ah, cross my mind. Okay. So you're, you're even more of a fanboy than we are. So well, uh, firstly, top marks. That's some excellent fanboy or fan person, I should say. Good work. I really, that is just I admire that so much. That's that's really awesome. Secondly, no, uh, it's just <laughs> I've seen I've seen the original version of Shadow. When I say the original, I mean the I think it was mid nineties VHS release, which had the footage and uh, Tom Baker doing the linking narration, and it came with a little script book. I probably still have it in a cardboard box somewhere. Um, that's the only version of Shadow. I'm not that big a fan of Shadow. I uh, I know we're all supposed to love it, but uh, I don't. Um, and, and so, but I just, I'm, I'm massively impressed by the fact that you made that connection. I'm massively disappointed in myself that I didn't. I'm disappointed in you too. Uh, rightly so. Uh, can I, can I, can I point something out? I've, I've just found the Iris Wildtime live journal community. Guess how many posts it has? A- Eleven. Oh. She does deserve more. I was yeah. maybe, or maybe it's maybe it is also for the best that she is this cult figure. I mean, yeah. there's. I feel like it's very in character for this. Well, yeah. It's, yeah, it's of her nature that she's going to be on on the periphery. She's going to be in the margins. That of course she is. She's an audio character played by a companion from the seventies who was spun off from a line of Eighth Doctor adventures that basically nobody except me read. What else is she going to be but marginal? And yeah. from a book that had nothing to do with Doctor Who in the first place. <laughs> But you know that's also why we love Iris. You know that yeah. there's such a, one of the great things about Doctor Who is that there is a place for these kind of marginal characters, for these things to be played around. And fine, Iris isn't like the best known or you know the most kind of uh, renowned, but you know she's got like half a dozen box sets and big finish, and she's played by Katie Manning. And there's not, I don't think there's a person alive that doesn't love Katie Manning. You know, um, and that's great. So I I, I do. Like again, I realize I haven't been the most positive person during this podcast, but I do admire the impulse to give these characters life and and sort of space beyond just like, like Panda is a completely kind of big finished creation, but it's a great one. Um, it's just yeah, just giving life and space to these characters who otherwise you know wouldn't occupy more than you know a couple of unbelievably obscure books or whatever. I I. I like that impulse, even if the results aren't always perfect. Hmm. Oh, actually, while while we're talking about uh, fan wank, uh, I don't know if you feel free to edit that out if that's if that's. Uh, oh, no, that's obscene. fine. That's fine. We've um, used it before. Oh, good. Oh, good. Uh, the 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 covers of this box set were all uh, sort of par- pastiches of uh, the the Target novel covers, with yeah. like very stark black and white pictures. Um, sort of in a I guess a fumetti kind of a style sort of cut up and moved around it's very fun fumetti is definitely not the word collage it's, it's cool i, I like them it's cool as well 
this is this is one of the the only uh, audio sets I have physically, partly because it was cheap, and mostly because like it it's a very handsome set. Like she's got this little like heart logo. Like I I would watch a magical girl cartoon starring this deranged drunken old lady running around stealing people's booze. That's basically There's... my life you've described. Marvelous. I hope we meet one day. Oh, we definitely will. You can you can count on it. But um, <laughs> yeah, we haven't really talked about the rest of the cast, so I'm gonna I'm gonna drag us back to the story. And um, yeah, let's talk about the mock turtle some more. <laughs> no, 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 not the mock turtle. Anybody else except the mock turtle? Well, I do like Sean Connolly as the Salford cat, which is also one of those. It was a joke that made me chuckle slightly. Yes, no, no, <laughs> I mean, that's what fair. they're going for. So you know, I, I don't hold that against it. No, no, absolutely. But yeah, I think I think he's good as a cat. But also, I really I think Lizzie Hopley is another Sean Collins situation where her Audrey voice is this weird German accent I could not get a handle on. But as Harriet Dodge, she's so much fun. The Red Queen figure. I like mm-hmm. how imperious she does. She is. I, you know, any time a story like this doubles up with their actors, I always have to spend, like, five minutes trying to parse, like, is are they saying something? Why are they playing two characters? Oh, no, it, it's just expensive to hire actors. Yeah, but no, I agree. I think Lucy Hopley does a fantastic job um, as as uh, Harriet Dodd. I, yeah, the, the, the German? Is that what you think it was? Okay, that's, that's uh, good. I, I had no idea what accent that was meant to be for Audrey. But, um, you know, yeah, she's, she's good. And, and Stephen Wickham is good as Professor Ramsbottom as well, sounding disconcertingly um, like Gareth Thomas or, or Blake, if you will. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's also good as well. This, uh, generally speaking, a strong cast here. And, okay, if we're going to, obviously, put the Mock Turtle to one side... Um, you know, I, I also prefer to, uh, you know, agree with what Kev said. And Sulphur Cat is a decent little gag, you know. It, and it, crucially, it doesn't outstay its welcome. I think that's the thing. Well, especially when it comes to the mock turtle, it just won't. Well, you can imagine what I'm going to say there. It just won't go away. Um, and it, it's that's like even if that had been like a one shot gag, it might have been mildly annoying. But it just keeps coming back and that's the problem with it whereas the sulfur cat is kind of in out it's a funny little bit and then we move on with the rest of it that's how these things should be handled it's it's almost taunting us when they kill off the white rabbit but keep the mock turtle alive (laughs) it's almost like some kind of perverse bit of play from marg's or, for, or from Gary Russell, who directed this. Not his strongest uh, work, I have to say. Um, but yeah, it, 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 it does feel like it's, uh, it's intentionally punishing the audience. And that's not necessarily the best approach to take when you want people to, you know, spend money on what it is you're creating. You know, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something I've only now realized, which is I don't think that the people who subscribe to Big Finish's monthly ranges are going to unsubscribe over quality. I think if you're going to unsubscribe from a big finish thing, it's going to be because um, they validated a ship you don't agree with (laughs) or or, uh, they they forgot the continuity of of a 1960s episode featuring a a tinfoil guy with one eye who lived on a a Noah's Ark. Oh, the mechanoids. I hate those guys. <laughs> that was the first episode I ever saw. Really? Oh, the wow. Monoids. Oh, dear. 
Oh, well, I'm, in that case, I'm unbelievably impressed that you're still here and, and still prepared to have anything to do with Doctor Who. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't be impressed. The reason I'm still here is because I enjoy punishing myself. Um, the, the credo of all Doctor Who fans. We just, <laughs> we just need something to kill the time. And there's a lot of this. Uh, you know, one, one thing that I'll give the 70s, and actually specifically the episode right after the one with the monoids, um, which wasn't the Ark in space, but it should have been because it was about a Noah's Ark. Um, right afterwards was the Celestial Toymaker. And like these days, if you did like a weird, like Lovecraftian entity beyond mortal comprehension, like you would actually get visuals in like a modern Doctor Who story that sort of befitted like, oh, this is beyond your comprehension. Uh, whereas then it was just like a vaguely racist caricature played by a British dude. Vaguely I, racist. Vaguely racist. A hundred percent racist. I haven't racist. seen it. I haven't seen it. I, I don't want to. Okay. I, um, I strongly suggest that you don't. <laughs> they keep bringing him back. I assume he is popular for a reason and not just, oh, it's it's just fan service. Uh, he is, yeah. This, he this is, is, is all fan service. Big Finish is all just fan service. It's meaningless. In in the morning, this will all turn into pumpkin cinders. He is he is popular, but he's popular for a reason that I absolutely include myself in, which is this: fans are idiots. I agree. True words, never spoken, and that's almost the best note to end the episode on. I feel, <laughs> except I have to, I feel almost obligated to point this out. Uh, the joke of using Ramsbottom as a last name that a character laughs at was also in one of the Despicable Me movies, which means now Iris Time is something linking her to the minions. Oh, dear. I think so, she'd love that. I think she would get along yeah. very well with the minions. I, I think, think she, she would, would corrupt too. the minions. I think she has something in common with the minions, which is this story isn't funny either. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Okay, well, that seems like a, a perfect place, I think, to leave Iris Wildtime and her rather variable first two stories. So we can probably move on to recommendations now. So let's start with our guest. Abby, what would you like to recommend this week? Well, I have been wasting my life playing Fantasy Star Online 2, which, which came out in 2012, uh, courtesy of Sega. Sequel to uh, their their 2000, uh, well, 1999 Dreamcast smash hit Fantasy Star Online. Made a sequel in 2012. Uh, 2013, they announced they were going to bring it out uh, for the, 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 the Western territories in English. Um, then they promptly didn't for seven years. And then this year, a few months ago, it finally, finally launched in the West. It's on Steam. It's it's free to play. It's It's... Like a like a beat 'em up with little RPG leveling up stuff. It's great, it's great. You should all play it. Play with me. Be my friend. Be my friend. Please be my friend. Be my friend. We all would want to be your friend, of course. Uh, can't think of a higher honor. Um, yeah, I think I'll throw in something next. Uh. A show that recently wrapped its first season that I've really loved this year. So it that edit a show that just wrapped its first season that I've really loved this year uh, is the Owl House, which is a show from Disney's TV wing. 
as you can probably surmise from the fact that I said Disney, it's definitely all ages. So if that's like a deal breaker, I mean, I don't blame you. That's a deal breaker for a lot of people. But it has a lot of the same talent as Gravity Falls, which is why I got interested in it. I'm not usually looking up these sort of cartoons, but then I was a big fan of that. I know that had like a lot of crossover with like more teen and adult fans. And this one does too. It has a really great story, a really great world. It's uh, very female centric, which I think is like just sort of nice to see in this sort of day and age. It's not like, but not like coded, you know, like Barbie. Is, I guess the best way I can say it. It's it's got strong characters, and one of them, uh, one of the characters, Ida, who is like this mentor, a witch mentor to this human girl called Luz, is the basic premise of the story. When Luz sort of enters this realm called the Boiling Isles, which is like the Disney version of a Hieronymus Bosch painting. Very surreal and demonic, but a little cute, too. And this Ida character is a lot like Iris Wildtime that I think about it. A very strong, independent woman who is just also just can't quite be boozy on the Disney Channel, but has that vibe of, like, you're very funny and uh, slacker on. You're cool, Yeah. Yeah, who keeps getting into mischief. And, yeah, I just think all the characters are really strong. It recently confirmed, like, the main character, Luz, and another character are uh, queer, which I think is a big step for all-ages animation. It's, beyond that, though, it's just, like, it's a very funny show. It's got a very cool world. It's got a very good vibe. I just had a great time watching it. It will, maybe I should have waited until it's on Disney+, Plus. it'll probably be on there within the next month. And, yeah, I just really recommend checking out The Owl House. It's great. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to go for something which is a little bit kind of out of our normal wheelhouse. And it's going to seem more niche than it is, but it's not really. Uh, I'm going to recommend a sitcom. uh, And the sitcom I'm going to recommend is called Still Game. It's a Scottish sitcom. Uh, It's available on uh, Netflix in America and indeed in the UK. Um, And it's uh, basically a sitcom about two old pensioners. And uh, it's a really, Aww. it's a really sweet and kind kind of sitcom. It's it's very very funny. It's also quite Scottish, so um, you know you have to you have to brace yourself for accents that maybe some people aren't necessarily that familiar with. But it's a really uh, it's a, it's a genuinely fantastic little sort of slice of life sitcom it's uh nine seasons long but the seasons are only six episodes because it's you know in british tv uh so it's not a vast kind of investment in time but it's just this really kind of kind-hearted nice but very authentic sort of sitcom it's it's very much kind of um a working class kind of sitcom so it's not it's not kind of cozy nice kind of thing it it, it it's it's genuine in the sense that it's reflecting I think a part of life that you don't see on TV very much. It's the people who are maybe in their 70s and 80s, both of the weak characters, their wives have died and they've moved on and they're still around. And that it's, that's why it's called Still Game. They're still about, they're still you know up for something. And it's just that portion of life that you just don't see on TV all that much. It is very funny. And so I don't want it to make it sound like it's a kitchen sink drama. It's not. It's, it's deeply funny. The two guys that created it, um, Ford Kiernan and uh, Greg Hempel, are, have been comedians in Scotland for a very long time. 
Um, so uh, that's my recommendation. It's called Still Game, and it's just this really. It's it's very charming in a, in a way, even although it's also it's also um, yeah probably don't watch it with your kids uh, would be my recommendation. But it's just it's a fabulous, um, nice, kind-hearted, genuine sort of a sitcom. So that's it for me. That's called Still Game. I just did a check for U.S. listeners. It's all on Netflix. So hey. yeah, there we good go. news. Yeah. So no matter what side of the pond you are, you can definitely check it out. Exactly, you get no excuse. But I think probably we can we can. I say that now. Um, I think we can probably leave it there for this week. So, uh, Kev, would you care to tell us people how they can get in touch with us? Sure, you can send us an email, talkingwho to you at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at talkingwho to you. I'm on Twitter at Kev Kozer, K E V K O E S E R. And you can find more JG's writings at jgmcquarrie.scott. That is www.jgmcquarrie.scott. And then, Abby, why don't you tell us anything you want to plug and where listeners can find you? I don't really got much of anything to plug. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm on Twitter, uh, Abby Denton, M-I-Z-A-B-I-T-H-A. And uh, my life has been in a test pattern for months. As has all Please of our like lives. Please like me. Please like me. As have all of our lives. Thank you. They come here, they don't know how to speak the language. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, I think I've always wanted to learn how to say that in Cherokee. Well, I, well that's your challenge. <laughs> okay, there we go. That's your challenge. Because you know you're going to be back in this podcast. So I'll, I'll do my best. Yeah, that's your challenge. Next time you're on this podcast, I want to be able to hear you saying that in Cherokee. What if people make fun of my accent? Well, people, listen, I've got this accent. Making fun of accents is not something we have to worry about in this podcast. You know, I, I've always, I've always liked hearing a nice, a nice Scotch accent. You're very it's kind always... to say so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let's draw a line under this and, and call it quits for this particular episode. Abby, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a delight. It's to been have an you honor back and on, a pleasure, as always. Next week, we will be back with something which is probably just as sensible as this has been. But we are going to do uh, a little wrap-up next week. So we're going to do uh, four short stories, uh, which we don't really have a reason to cover like the whole box set from these stories. So we're just going to pick a few individual stories, and it will give us an excuse to talk about them. So we're going to be covering Urgent Calls, uh, Mission of the Virons, Spider Shadow, and Urban Myths. Four short stories, one episode That's going to be our next one. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking.